How's that? Is that any better? I don't know. I'm wearing two hearing aids these days, so I don't know whether I'm on or off or up or down. I do appreciate the fact that y'all still use lapel mics. Everywhere else I go, they give me this thing they want to hang on my ear and go around my head and hook on this ear. And I knock my hearing aids off, and next thing you know, I'm in a, a quandary. Do you have your Bibles with you this morning? If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11, will be the text for the sermon this morning. John chapter 8, in newer translations, usually has a footnote that the first either 8 or 11 verses of this chapter was not in the original gospel that John wrote. The newer translations state that that was probably added by a scribe that was transcribing one copy and recopying another and made these notes in here. I reject that idea myself. Uh, If it's not in the Bible, then why do they keep putting it in there? But none nevertheless, it's in my Bible. And I think I've got the same Bible most of you all are using. So we're going to preach from John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11 this morning. I'd like to read the scripture. And if, if you can, and I know some can't, but if you're able to, it's always been my custom to ask the people in God's house to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. It's important that we respect and reverence God when we read his word. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And then in verse 3 it says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery when they had set her in the midst. Now I'll stop there and give you a, a little parenthetical Uh, insert here. They were very jealous of Jesus because people were listening to him and not paying so much attention to what they were saying. And so jealousy had crept in and the scribes and the Pharisees were looking for a way to trip Jesus up or to trick Jesus so that they might accuse him. And they had devised this glorious plan to bring a woman that was an adulteress and to put her in front of Jesus and then to shove the law of Moses into Jesus's face and try to see if they could find somewhere that they could accuse him. And so here's what happens in verse four. They say unto him, master. Now I wasn't there when this happened and neither were you, but I can just see the sarcasm dripping off of that word because they did not regard Jesus as their master. Uh, Master. Thus, this, or this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. 
So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down <coughs> and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for this church, and for this congregation. I thank you for this pastor that has been the, the under-shepherd of this church for so many years. I thank you, Father, for his friendship. I thank you, Father, for his uh, dedication and his willingness to follow your word and to be uh, follow the person that you called him to be, a pastor, a teacher, and a preacher. And Father, I know he's home this morning and he's, he's uh, under the weather. And I pray, Lord, that you've already begun healing him. And I pray that he'll be uh, coming back strong and refreshed. And, and uh, at the next uh, uh, Sunday or maybe this Wednesday, Lord, he'll be able to come back and, and to teach your word to these wonderful people. Now, I pray, Father, for those that are here this morning that are uh, sick in this congregation. I know that there's probably some that are home today because they're not able to get out. I pray that you would bless them. And I pray, Father, that uh, through the other ministries of this church, the uh, the online ministries, Lord, that they'll be able to receive a blessing from uh, worshiping, even though they're not here in, in person, not in body, but, Lord, they're here in spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you will bless them. We also pray, Father, and have a deep concern for those that are lost without Jesus. I pray this morning, Father, that you'll put me behind the cross and that they'll see Jesus, Father, in these scriptures and, and that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon their soul that they might turn from the world and turn to you, trust and put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved and become a part of your family. Now, Lord, go with us. Bless the reading and the hearing of this word. And Lord, may it not return void in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all and be seated. Yes, as you, as you read this text and, and you begin to kind of try to put your mindset into that setting 2,000 years ago and, and you see these events taking place, when we see uh, the sarcasm of the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, the way they approach Jesus and the way they just keep aggravating when he's uh, stooped and writing in the ground, have you ever wondered what Jesus was writing in the dust on that day? Now, there's been a lot of speculation. Of course, we don't know what he wrote. But I just wonder if maybe he was writing some of the names of the men that were accusing this woman of being adulterous that might have been with her, with her themselves. He might have been writing the, the, the Ten Commandments out. I don't know. But whatever he was doing, uh, it, was, it was what he chose to do at the time, and it had a reason. There was a reason for what he was doing. And they keep hounding Jesus and they keep aggravating him. And finally he stands up and he says, Okay, let those that are without sin among you, let them cast 
the first stone. I preached a sermon similar to this one, a little different points, a few years ago in, a, in the second church that I was pastoring. And we had some what they call rip rock, uh, great big limestone stones that lined a ditch line somewhere out there in the front of the, uh, or the back end of the church. And when I was preaching, I brought one of those great big rocks in for an illustration. And I brought that great big white limestone rock. They're about the size of a football or a basketball. And I'm holding it here. And I got to the part about the ones that were without sin, let them uh, cast the first stone. And, And I just visually in my mind and tried to express this to the congregation that one by one, and I think I saw a movie where they, they just dropped the rocks. They all had their rocks ready to throw. And when I dropped that thing, I didn't realize how hollow underneath uh, the stage area was. And that thing hit that floor, and it sounded like a bomb going off. And the ones that were about half asleep, they jumped up and got real attentive real quick. And I thought, man, if I just had one of those big white rocks, I might do that this morning. But I thought, no, there's no need for that because I'm going to put a little different uh, take. Uh, this, this scripture doesn't change. It means the same thing today that it did back when John wrote it. And uh, the applications can be a little different, but it only has one true meaning. And it only has one correct interpretation. This was interpreted out of the Greek language into the into uh, the modern English that we're reading here. And my English Bible has got a little age on it. It's about 400 years old now. But I understand what this Bible says. And as the Holy Spirit guides us as we read this scripture, the Holy Spirit teaches us uh, the meaning. I, I can see that these people are sarcastic against Jesus. Why else would they call him master when they wanted to crucify him? Uh, why else would they want to make an example of this woman when they themselves had their own sins and their own issues that they needed to deal with? And so it reminds me of a comedian, a modern day comedian, as an old country, I don't know where he's from, Texas or Oklahoma, but his name is Jeff Foxworthy. Any of y'all ever hear of Jeff Foxworthy? Now some of his stuff is a little over the edge. And uh, I, I wish that some of these comedians, if they would just be funny the way God uh, created them, it, it would be so much better. But a lot of them like to get involved in cursing and telling dirty things. But one of the things that this Jeff Foxworthy has become world known for is his, you might be a redneck stuff. And he always closes out his concerts by doing a whole new spiel of you might be a redneck. And he comes up with stuff like this. Some of the ones I remember. If you mow your grass in the front yard and you find a car, you might be a redneck. And he, he's, he's making fun of, of that class of people. And he says, I can do that because I'm a redneck myself. I are one. And I read about the Pharisees and I have to be honest with myself. And I've got to be honest with you folk today. I'm a Pharisee too, but I'm a Pharisee in recovery. I've been sick with this pharisaical nonsense, and and, and it it has interrupted my life at times. But the Holy Spirit is quick to convict me of it, and I have repented and asked God to forgive me because there have been times in my life 
And I wonder maybe if we're all honest, there's a little bit of that in all of our lives to where we've all acted a little pharisaical from time to time. Now, wondering how I'm going to tie Jeff Foxworthy, as you might be a redneck, into this sermon, I'm going to begin with my first point. If you see the sins of others, but you can't see your own, you might be a Pharisee. Does that make sense? You might be a Pharisee if you see other sins, but you have trouble seeing your own sins. Kind of like the guy that Jesus talked about that has a beam in this eye and you're going to try to remove a splinter out of somebody else's eye. You might be a Pharisee. Now, as we go back to the scripture, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees have went out and and according to their testimony, they found a woman in the very act of adultery and they drag her and I can visualize that she's got dirt and straw in her hair. She's all beshoveled and and they drag her by the uh, head of the hair and, and just throw her in the ground in front of Jesus And it it reminds me of what we see so often in the world today. We see people without homes, living under bridges and overpasses. And these people are pitiful. Now some of them have mental issues and some of them are, are there by their own choice. But still, when we as Christians look at people that are going through that type of thing... Rather than jumping up and and condemning them and and finding all kinds of fault with what they're doing, it seems to me that Jesus would look on people like this with compassion and feel pity for these people and try to help them. Now, you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. And and people that won't help themselves, sooner or later, they're going to have to hit the bottom before they can turn and, and, and get straightened out. But ultimately what these people need and what this woman needed was an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And she gets that on this day. And so I know that I have been guilty of looking at other people and kind of like the other Pharisee that we read about, I think in the Gospel of Luke, the other Pharisee that stood in the in the temple and when he prayed he wanted to make sure that everybody heard him he wanted to make sure that everybody saw him and he sees some other uh, uh, tax collector publican over here in the corner that's trying to have a, a little conversation with God and he says God I'm glad I'm not like him I'm glad I'm not like that fellow how many of us today if we were honest, would admit that we've done things like that. I'm glad I'm not like that one over there. And I, I tithe of all my possessions and I pray three times a day and I keep all the laws and boy, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I don't know that that prayer gets past the drywall of the ceiling. In fact, we were remodeling a church way down in Louisiana. And we were up there trying to work on the heating and the air conditioning duct work and stuff. And it was uh, tight quarters and it was hot in the summer and we had to do it early in the morning before the sun got up or it got so hot up there you couldn't stand it. And we had people down there with garden hoses spraying the roof off and steam was coming off of that metal roof. And we were up there and one guy said to us, 
look at all these prayers up here that never made it past the drywall. (laughs) We have got to remember that we have all been children of the world in our past. We've got to remember that. We don't need to dwell in it. We don't need to live in it, but we need to never forget that it's only by the grace and mercy of God that any of us have ever been saved. And the thing that we have to remember also is we have got to uh, focus on the fact that we've been saved. We've got the good news. We've found the cure. We need to be sharing that with others. And I know sometimes it's difficult. It's, it's, it's like Jesus when he went in John chapter 4, instead of walking across the river and going all the way up through the mountains just to get around uh, the Samaritans, Jews wouldn't walk through Samaria. They felt like those people were lower class people. We don't need to be associated with them and we don't need to talk to them and we need to go around it and Here Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. I got to go there. And he had an appointment, a divine appointment with a woman at the well. You remember that? And he's sitting there resting at the well. The rest of the disciples go to the town to buy some supplies or some food or something. And this woman comes in in the middle of the day, which tells us that she's being castigated by her own people because the women drew well early in the morning before it got hot. Here she comes at noontime in the middle of the day to draw water. So she's not only an outcast as far as the Jews are concerned, she's an outcast among her own people. Yet Jesus has compassion on her and he speaks to her. And it just shocks her beyond capacity because Jewish men would not even want to be in that place, let alone have a conversation with a sinner that's a woman of Samaria. Jesus asked her for a drink of water. Only time, he only asked a couple of things of people throughout the Gospels. One of those things was a drink of water. He asked for it on the cross too, but she says, uh, why are you asking me for a drink of water? You're a Jew. You're a man. I'm, a, I'm just a Samaritan woman. And he has this conversation. You can read all about it in John chapter 4. But come to find out, he started telling her things about herself that nobody else knew. And she couldn't understand how he knew it unless he was a preacher sent from God. He said, go get your husband and tell him. She said, I have no husband. He said, that's right. You've had five husbands, I believe it was. And the man you live with now is not your husband. And so she goes back to the village and tells the people that she's met a man that knows things that only God could know. And as I understand the scripture, there was a great revival that took place in that village because of the testimony of this one woman that Jesus had compassion with. Met her where she was, confronted her with her own sin, and she became a believer in Christ. And it tells us that many people became believers because of the testimony of this one woman. And look at the impact it's had on history. Here we are 2,000 years later talking about this woman. And so a Pharisee will look at others and see real quick the sin of the other people. 
Have you ever looked at someone driving down the road, might have a couple of tattoos on their arm, riding a motorcycle, and uh, I'm glad I'm not that person. I didn't have any tattoos, but I have rode a motorcycle a couple of times. I wonder how many times people might have said that of me. I don't know. But the fact is, we need to quit focusing so much on other people's sins so that we can deal with our own. We need to deal with our own sins and we need to deal with them honestly before God and we need to confess our sins. The Bible says if we'll confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. We be faithful and confess, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins. And God help us when we get to the point that the only sin that we ever see is the sins of others. Now another thing that we need to jump across. Let's jump up about four chapters into John 12 if you still have your Bibles open. Here's the account of Mary. Now there's two or three other scriptures. Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14 uh, address this. And I don't think they named the person. But here John names Mary, the sister. I, I believe, it's, I, can't tell, I can't remember if it's Mary Magdalene or Mary the, the uh, sister of, of Martha. But anyway, he says Mary came and broke open this uh, point, uh, this expensive ointment of spikenard, very costly, uh, and begins to anoint the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And the Bible says the house was filled in verse 3 with the odor of the ointment. So here's my second point. If you're more worried about the cost than you are the the value of a person's soul, you might be a redneck. No, you might be a Pharisee. Let's not get so caught up uh, in thinking that we are so blessed that we begin to pick at the, uh, at, at the honest efforts of others to worship Christ and the Lord Jesus. It actually was Judas Iscariot who was by any means not a Pharisee. He was actually a, a zealot. But he was acting like a Pharisee because the Bible says in verse 5, he asked a question, why, why are we doing this? Why are we letting this woman waste all of this on your feet? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And then he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was the thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. You see, a Pharisee will make a statement And it's usually based on a lie. They're just not honest. Judas was not honestly worried about the poor people in the world at that time. He wasn't worried. He didn't care about poor people. He cared about getting that 300 pennies into that bag that he had control of so that he could do with it whatever he wanted to. Apparently they didn't have a very good checks and balance and and an accountability program going on here. But Jesus, Judas was a thief and he was a liar. And, and he's, the, uh, he's the son of perdition. He's the one that uh, betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the garden of Gethsemane so that they could arrest him and drag him off to the temple to be tortured and scourged and eventually brought before Pilate and crucified. More worried about the cost than he was 
the value of a human soul. And so we need to remember that if we are going to be Christians today, that God is called out of the world, and, and we're going to be uh, going to take the gospel not only to Jerusalem and to Samaria and the, and the, the region in Galilee, but to the uttermost parts of the world, we're going to have to get back there and get in our billfold every now and then. Missionaries have to eat. Missionaries have to live. Ministries uh, require financing. And it's not that God is broke and, and not that we have to worry about the financing. The Bible says in the Psalms that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But let me add this. He owns the hills too. He owns all the cattle. He owns you. He owns me. And he paid for us with his own blood. We don't have to worry about financing. I know we need to be good stewards and and all of that. But if God says, go out there and reach the world, he'll prepare and he will provide the way for that to happen. We don't have to worry our little brains about what God's going to do and how he's going to accomplish it. Don't worry about the mule. Just load the wagon. That's what we need to do. We need to be obedient to scripture and we need to do what God has called us to do. What has God called us to do? I think it says, go ye therefore into all the world, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Ghost and the Holy Ghost. We need to take the gospel to the world. And we need to start here in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. And then we need to reach out into the surrounding counties. And then the state of Kentucky. And then the United States. And eventually around the world. One of the sermons that I remember hearing preached from this pulpit. And man, I I have heard some good ones. And most of them come from Brother Anders. But you know, they used to have uh, revivals every now and then. Y'all still have revivals? Bible conferences and bring preachers in. Norman Noble. How many of y'all remember Norman Noble? I know you do. What about uh, Luther Price, Uncle Luther? Any of y'all ever hear those men preach? Uh, the boy over in Green... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. See what happens when you get pushed, pushing, uh, wearing hearing aids. You forget names. I'll think of it in a minute and it'll just pop out. But uh, the preacher that I'm thinking of in revival here, uh, he's now the judge of Muhlenberg County. You know who I'm talking about. Curtis. Apologize. I, if, he's, if he hears this, he'll, I apologize. Curtis McGee. He said he preached a, a sermon one time at a church that he was pastoring, and the name of the sermon was Whatever It Takes. He said that he was pastoring a little old church that the flooring, the carpeting on the floors, had, had literally rotted and mildewed and was stuck to the floor. It was, it was so old and so dirty and, and so ratty. And he was trying to get the congregation to uh, think about doing a little bit of interior remodeling. I think the roof had leaked and the water had come down and it just a mess. And he started talking and trying to talk to the committees and the various leadership of the church about, you know, we we might need to spruce this up. People come in as guests and they take one look around, they smell that mildew and they see that rotten carpet coming up off the floor. 
uh, it's a bad impression. And you know, when people come into a church first time, that first impression is what kind of sticks with them. And the first thing that they come to him was, Preacher, do you know how much two before it's cost? Preacher, do you know how much carpet cost? <laughs> do you know how much it costs to redo that roof up there? Worried about the cost. See, the simple fact is when, when you've got a church that is made up, the membership is made up of Pharisees, and a Pharisee, by the way, is an apostate. A Pharisee is a person that has religion, but they've never had a relationship with Jesus. They have seen light, but they have no life. They have profession, but they have no possession. That's what a Pharisee is. That's what an apostate is. And the reason so many churches have found themselves in trouble and in decline, this is my own opinion, but it's because a lot of times membership is made up of lost people. And lost people may try to fool uh, the world and may try to fool a person every now and then. They may try to come in and play church, may try to come in and act like they're Christians, but the fact is, they're still as lost as a ball in high weeds. And when you get a, a congregation that is made up of lost people, it's no longer a New Testament church made up of baptized believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a social club. It's a country club. I never did want to pastor a country club. I didn't see the, the, the need and, and that God would call me to go and pastor a country club. And so whenever I've stepped into the pulpit, I've tried to tell people what the Bible says. And the Bible says that we are supposed to go into the world and take the gospel to others. They're in darkness. We have the cure for the problems and the issues of sin in our lives. We need to be sharing that with others. How many, if you had a cure for cancer, would keep that to yourself and uh, three or four buddies and just get together once a week and, you know, have a good time? No, you should be standing on the rooftops, shouting it at the top of your lungs. Like the guy in, in the chapter, early chapters of John that was, that was blind and Peter and John... Uh, or was crippled. Let's see, there was a blind man. It was the blind man. And, and he said, I was lost, but now I'm found. It's, that's what the basis of the, the song Amazing Grace. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's all I know. There was a time when I couldn't see, but now I can see. I don't know all the theological uh, ramifications, but I know that I was lost, and now I'm saved. These are the things that we should be sharing and not ashamed of. Jesus said in the Bible, if you are ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you in front of the Father. We need to not be ashamed of Jesus. We need to be sharing Jesus. And we need to not act like Pharisees. And if we have acted like Pharisees, there's one thing that we need to do. We should be getting on our knees and asking for forgiveness and asking God 
to lead us and to help us to be a witness to others. So last point I want to make. If we can see other sins, have trouble seeing our own, if we're more concerned with the cost of ministry than we are with saving lost souls, the last thing I want to leave you with, and I I hope you'll remember, if you have trouble forgiving, even though God has forgiven you of all your sins, then you might be a Pharisee or at least acting like one. We need to remember that God has saved us from our sin, past, present, and future. When the Lord Jesus saved me, he wiped clean the slate of all my past sins, my present sins, and the sins to come. He forgave me of those. The Bible says that my sins have been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. Do you all know how far the east is from the west? If I had a basketball, I'd show you something. Can you all imagine I've got a basketball? A basketball is the size and the, or, or the shape of the earth that we live on. We live on the outside of a round ball. You believe that? Any flat earthers still here among us? <laughs> you know, a lot of people think the earth is flat, and when you get to the edge, you just fall off. But the earth is round. It's a circle. It's, it's, a, it's an orb. It has two magnetic poles, a north pole and a south pole. Are you with me? If you're with me, say amen. If you take a plane at the equator and you take off headed north on a runway and you get up in the air and you fly due north according to the compass, when you get so far, you're going to cross the North Pole. Right? Right. Once you pass the North Pole, which direction are you going in? You're going south. And so... How far is the north from the south? From this pole to that pole. It's a distance you can measure. All right? Now take that same little Cessna Cub two-seater airplane, go back to the equator, and take off flying in the direction of west, west heading. You take off into the sun, and you're flying west, and you keep 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 flying west, you're eventually going to come back to where you took off from, but which direction are you still going to be going in? West. How far is the east from the west? Only God could have come up with that 4,000 years ago, 4,600 years ago, whatever the time was, and, and inspire David, the psalmist, to write that in the Psalms. God knew that the earth was round. You want to know why? He created it. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis verses 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth. And God knows that it's east and west. And that's why in the Bible it says your sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. There's no dimension that you can measure there. There's no way you can measure it. It's immeasurable. It's infinity. And so God knew and inspired David to write that. 
Listen, folks, we all need forgiveness. Jesus said, it's in the Bible, recorded in Matthew chapter 6. You can check me if you want to. But Jesus said, if we don't forgive others of their trespasses against us, God is not going to forgive us of our trespasses. Now, I've been forgiven of my trespasses, so what does that tell me? It tells me that I must forgive others. Let me tell you something, folks. I've had people tell lies on me and Sherry since I've been in the ministry that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And I've had a couple of enemies, but I still love them. Why do I still love my enemies? Because Jesus said I have to. He didn't say I had to like them or I didn't have to like what they do. But I got to love them. I got to pray for them. I got to pray for them. And as much as it takes for me to swallow all of that nastiness and just keep my mouth shut and bite my tongue, I am even required to pray for them. Bible says if I'll pray for them and be kind to them, it's just like taking a big shovel, a coal shovel, scooping up a bunch of ashes and red hot coals and just pouring it on their head. Set their hair on fire. Do it with kindness, do it with love, but forgive others. God is the judge. He didn't call me to judge anybody. He called me to preach, tell people what the Bible says, to love people and see them as he does, to have passion and compassion and pity upon them, and to teach them what the Word of God says. Then it's the work of the Holy Spirit. I've done my part up to that point. We've done our part as Christians. But then the work of the Holy Spirit will come and convict them of the sin in their heart and draw them to God and show them how much they need Jesus. That's the way God saves people. He's been doing it that way for thousands of years. He's not going to change now. We don't have to have a cappuccino cafe up here uh, so that people can come and get them a good hot cup of cappuccino and get saved. We don't have to save people with cappuccino. We need to save people with the gospel. And I said that wrong. I need to correct myself. We need to share the gospel so that Jesus can save them. The term is Jesus saves. Not we save. Jesus saves. And he is in us. And nothing that we do can earn our salvation. But once God has saved us, he works through us and in us so that we might reach others with the gospel so that others can be saved as well. It's ABC. It's as simple as one, two, three. You admit you're lost. You confess your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess your sins. It's ABC. Admit it, believe it, confess. The Bible says if we'll believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. They teach that in Bible school. Little kids, ABCs of salvation. Now I know this is probably a little bit unorthodox. Might not be the type of sermon that you're accustomed to. You, I'm sure that, I, in fact I know you've been listening to sermons that are much more theological Take you deeper in the word. and 
And uh, that's the job of that pastor is to come in and, and to, to, to teach you, to challenge you to live according to God's word. And I admire Brother Jeff for his tenacity and for his courage and for his stamina. And through all he's been through, and he's still preaching the word unapologetically. And God used Brother Jeff to call an old redneck, knucklehead Pharisee in recovery into the ministry by the name of Rodney. And I, I'm just so grateful for Brother Jeff and, and uh, his obedience to God. But let's come to the question this morning. The question is this, and as we begin to prepare for a time of invitation, let me ask you a question. Is it real easy to see the sins of other people? Even in churches. I've pastored a couple of churches in my time, and I've preached in several, especially since I retired. I've, I've preached in a lot of churches. And by and large, they're all very much similar, but, but no two are exactly alike. But there's always a tendency for people that have been saved and, have, and should be mature in their Christianity and their walk with Jesus, there's a tendency sometimes to forget that I used to be like that. I used to be lost. I used to do things that I'm not real proud of today. You know, there was a, a little coast... Coastal town, you know, where the up in the northeast, where they've got the uh, the little towers. Uh, what do they call them things? Lighthouse. The old song, the lighthouse, the old gospel song. That lighthouse is there for a reason, and it's to keep the ships from coming and getting busted up on the rocks and destroying the ships, and and ultimately probably losing the the lives of the, of the crew and the passengers. But in this little coastal town, they had a life-saving station, just a little shack, just a little old, you know, eight by ten, because every now and then there would be a ship that didn't get the warning in time or didn't heed the warning, and they crashed in the rocks, and they had a little lifeboat, and there was two or three volunteers that would be in the, in the little life-saving building and they would jump in the water with their boat and they'd paddle out there and they'd grab the people out of the sea put them in the boat paddle back to the life-saving station and they would help them get dried up they'd put blankets around them and quilts and get them dried off and uh you know help them to not strangle on the seawater and they get the seaweed out of their hair and They'd get them some new clothes or some dry clothes and feed them a little bit, maybe a good hot cup of soup, and get them nourished and, and help, help them get along their way. That was their job. That was their calling. But one day, somebody suggested, you know, if we had a little bigger boat and a little bigger building, we could save more people. And so they thought, that's a good idea. And so they recruited a few more volunteers and 
they tore that little shack down and they built a lot bigger, 14,000 or 1,400 square foot building. And they got a couple extra boats and put a motor on one of them. And, and when somebody would crash, then here they'd come and they'd save. And they did. They saved a few more people. But as time went on, they began to add nice things. You know, let's put some restrooms in. Let's put some, you know, some nice tapestries on the wall and some carpet on the floor. And let's make this place look really warm and inviting. And they got to polishing it all up. But then eventually, when they'd bring in a boatload of these lost seafaring people, somebody got to thinking, yeah, they stink. Man, they they smell like old dead fish. And they're all got mud and water and sand and they're destroying our carpet. And man, I don't know. It you know, we got this this is a nice place and we're more worried. We're a little worried that they're gonna ruin it. You see, they got to thinking more about their own sales and they did about the people that were lost. You know, a lot of churches have gotten into that condition. We don't want them kids in here. Look where they took a crayon and marked on that wall over there. You know, preacher, you know how much it's going to cost to repaint that? Preacher? Pharisees. We don't need to be Pharisees. We need to be concerned about the lost. And we need to not get all hung up on laws and do's and nots and thou's and these. We need to share Jesus. And we need to let Jesus shine in our lives. We're not Jesus, but we're reflectors. Our lives should reflect Jesus so that others can see. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. Brother Greg is going to prepare for an invitation. It won't be a long invitation. It'll be as long as God wants it to be. But if you're here this morning and you find yourself this morning in this condition that I have found myself in before. But if you're a, if you're a Pharisee, what you need is recovery. You need to be a recovering Pharisee. And quite frankly, what you just need to do is just do business with God. Just confess to God that you've made some mistakes. We all have. There's none of us perfect. No, not one.